I, I come from a house divided. And I don't know if, uh, if you guys have any feelings of that. Maybe, maybe UCLA, UCLA kind of vibes. Any UCLA people in the house? All two of you. And then the rest of us are USC, I figure. I went to Biola and my wife, my, my wife went to APU. So we have a little bit of rivalry. In fact, in the, the LA Times, believe it or not, uh, the head coach of APU basketball was quoted as saying, I can't imagine the USC-UCLA rivalry being anything better than this Biola-APU rivalry, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and it was the APU coach who said it, so what a, what a loser. Um, <laughs> any claws out there? Yeah, go Eagles. Um, but I come from a house divided. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about football. I'm not talking about colleges. I'm not talking about that kind of rivalry. Our rivalry is actually this. How do you take your eggs? When you see this, do you look at that and think, <laughs> is anyone here completely disgusted by the thought of a runny egg? They're quite, my wife is with you. Now, is it, are there any other like, more sane people here who think, man, give me an egg, I will eat it. It is a superfood. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Give me the eggs. Amen. I'm with you, better people. But if you, if you look at this photo and you're like, oh, I look at that, I think that is delicious. That looks incredible. Man, oh, man, I hear some, some visceral responses from, like, I, I just, I feel it with my entire being. That I just included because that just looks like a work of art, and there's an egg in the photo. But, but back to the eggs. They seem so polarizing in some ways. And obviously, if you put any amount of thought into this, I could have chosen a multitude of things, but it felt like eggs were safe. So we're staking with eggs. I love eggs. I eat too many eggs every day. And it is just, the, oh, it's the best part of my morning. After I hug Ellie and say good morning to my wife, I eat so many eggs. Coffee, eggs, that's Stephen. But there are people who look at this and it is just completely disgusting. It is the worst thing on the planet. And they don't ever want to have a thought about looking at eggs. They won't touch it. If there's a little bit of runny, dippy yolk left on the plate, they will not even touch it. And we have friends like that. We have family like that. I don't understand you people, but... Hey, more power to you. You're missing out on a lot of great nutrients. So I'm healthy. <laughs> I'm not. But um, it's, in our text today, it's, it's, it's going to kind of relate to this in a sense that when, when, when we see Jesus, there are two completely polarizing experiences that we're going to see in this text today. As we look at Acts chapter 19, it, it, it's a visceral response to Jesus. Almost like when you see this and it is completely disgusting or you cannot get enough of it. There are two different responses that Luke in Acts 19 is going to unpack for us from when people experience the gospel. They encounter the gospel and they react in one of two extremely polarized responses. And I think it's going to be a challenge to us today because I think the gospel demands a response. I think the gospel demands that we think and respond and actually interact with it and see either I'm completely repulsed by this or there's nothing better. Now, hear me loud and clear. It's so much more significant than how you take your eggs. But I think this visceral response is going to be on full display in our text today. So read with me. We have a handful of verses. It says this, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. What specifically? Now, it's assigned to all of chapter 19. I just want you guys to know I cut out the first 16. And yes, it does. If you're reading in your English Standard Translation or whatever translation, ESV puts a, this right in the middle of a paragraph. And why I did that is because I think it actually is the self-contained story. 
I think what we're seeing here is going to be the story itself, and so we miss a little bit of uh, the story of seven sons of Sceva and some crazy interactions there, and before that, Paul has some crazy interactions, but essentially, to set up the context, Paul has been killing it, and Paul keeps killing it, and then some crazy stuff happens, and then Paul continues to just share the gospel and share the gospel and share the gospel, and it looks like there has been some significant gospel success, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord, was, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or praised, and many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to come out to 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, one commentator said that that's 153 days of food, sorry, 153 years of food for 100 families. So it's a significant amount of money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance, again with the interesting negatives, no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, a Greek goddess, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may, become in, and may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonius, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowds, the disciples wouldn't let him. And then even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him, urging him not to venture into the theater. Now when some cried out one thing and then others another, for the assembly was in confusion, but most of them didn't know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. When they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there? who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they're proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. God, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your word. Thank you for reminders of your goodness with how deep your love is for us. 
Thank you for this text in Acts chapter 19 and the reminder, the encouragement, the challenge that it brings us. We pray you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our, 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 our spirits to understand what you have for us today in this text. God, encourage us to trust you more, to experience more fully the joy that comes from you, and to share that outward with people who may be far from you. We pray this all for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Here's our big idea. Following Jesus disrupts, following Jesus disrupts, and it transforms what we worship, and who we are becoming. And there's nothing better. Following Jesus is a disruption. In a lot of ways, it, it, it leads to this visceral response where I can't get enough or I absolutely hate it. And folks, for us who trust Jesus, there is nothing better. There is nothing better than a disruption from Jesus that shakes up the way we're doing things that changes us for the better, that exposes our idols and challenges us to see Jesus more clearly, which influences everything about us. The gospel promotes the transformation of us and our culture. That's, a, uh, I worded it weird, I get it, I'm sorry, but the gospel transforms us and our culture. And how does it do it? It transforms us by disrupting our priorities and our values. It says this in verse 18. Remember again the context Paul's killing it, lots of good things. The gospel is spreading like crazy, going all over the place on his missionary journey. Good things are happening. The word is getting out. And now many also of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. I'm not going to say anything about Harry Potter. I've never read it. But this, it piqued my interest. I know there were cultures that were burning books for a long time, and I won't say anything about dark arts, Aranya Exame or something like that with Harry Potter, but um, they, they're collecting their, 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 their magic arts. These people who have been uh, dabbling in the spiritual realm, causing weird stuff to go on, they bring their practices, their books full of spells, their books full of whatever they have, and they actually are, they're so motivated by this experience of Jesus, by this impact of the gospel, that it shuffles them up so much that they actually are motivated to do something significant about it to where the community comes together and 50,000 pieces of silver worth of these books are now burned. Would you say that is a positive response to Jesus or would you call that a negative response to Jesus? Any hands for positive? Feels like that's a pretty good thing that's going on. People who are understanding and Jesus is actually impacting the way that they are living. It's actually shaking up the way that they're doing their life. This Jesus disruption, this gospel disruption is actually motivating them to respond. Different from uh, the, the sell your property and give it like we, like we talked about with integrity and Ananias and Sapphira weeks ago in the book of Acts. A little different from that, but they're actually bringing it. And this way of life that I used to be glued to, this way that I used to find order is now useless to me. I had a friend in college named John Iverson. And he, uh, you've probably never heard of him. He's just a buddy of mine. But he... <laughs> for what that's worth. He, uh, he came to Biola uh, moments after. He decided to come to Biola moments after uh, having this crazy experience where he came to faith. And he was living for himself. And he comes to faith. After a handful of years, uh, just hanging with him at Biola, he decided to get baptized. And we went to a, a baptism service uh, at his church. It was a church in La Mirada, uh, another EV Free church in La Mirada. And uh, he, he came out wearing something that was a little surprising. A lot of the time we baptize people and you wear know, board shorts or, and a t-shirt, something like that, something that you can get dunked in the water with. That's pretty common. He came out wearing a full suit. And I thought, well, that's 
interesting. I didn't hear anything about this beforehand, but as they're interviewing him, uh, he said uh, that there are two reasons why he's wearing a suit. Number one, he was taught always to dress for the occasion. I missed the memo on that one, but <laughs> sorry. But he said, dress for the occasion. And uh, he said, this is, this is like my wedding day. There's nothing better. And number two, it was a very nice suit, mind you. He was a business major, so they're a little different from us Bible majors. And uh, they have a different trajectory in their life. But uh, he, he said, number two, uh, this, this signifies my old self. This signifies who I used to be. And I have no idea how much a suit cost, but uh, it was a nice fitted suit. And he said, what's, what's going to happen is two things. Number one, it's going to be completely submerged. It's going to be completely soaked. And uh, I'm no Egyptian cotton expert, but, uh, or whatever suits are made out of. Uh, but I, I assume that's not great for it. And he said, the second thing is when I come up, the suit will be effectively rendered useless. And he said, my pursuits of getting to Wall Street... My pursuits of, of, of this life that I have before me that was consuming everything, every decision I made, this, this motivation is now useless. What do I need this for? And it just stuck with me. That was probably seven, eight, nine, probably ten, a lot of years ago. I'm getting older. And uh, it was a long time ago. And it stuck with me that it's, it's rendered useless. Why? I don't need that anymore. Now he's bought other suits. He's bought other suits since then. Yes, he still went into the business world and he's killing it, doing his thing. But, but that idea, that approach that I have these books, I have these magic arts books full of spells and I can do crazy things and it's all mystical and that kind of thing, but I don't need it anymore. Why would I hold on to it? Here. And they burn it. And again, they burn a significant amount of money. One uh, thing that I think is interesting, and here's one of the reasons why I connected this with the text later on that we're going to get into with, with the actual riot in Ephesus is because it... The unit of measurement, what's the unit of measurement they use? It's 50,000 pieces of, now, generally it would just be called a drachma or denarius. That's the standard unit of measurement of finances, and it was a silver coin. But he calls it silver, and I think he calls it silver because of the story that's to come. I think it wants us to really look at their approach, their response to the other response of Artemis, or of, the, of Demetrius, and his trinkets with Artemis, his silver trinkets, I think Luke wants us to see what is that silver and how do you hold on to it? How are you holding it? Are you getting rid of it or are you hoarding it and collecting it and preserving it and doing everything in your might to hold on closer to that silver? Because the next text isn't about denarius or drachmas or anything like that. It's, it's about out of worship. What is that silver that we're holding on to? So, Pretty crazy response to the gospel, I'd say. That's pretty encouraging, I think. What a wild thing. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, feels like an understatement. 153 years of food for 100 families. Uh, feels like a pretty tangible response to people can, uh, understanding, I don't need this value anymore. I have a new life. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, transforms us by disrupting our priorities. The things we used to live for get flip-flopped upside down. The gospel transforms and impacts life around us. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself, Paul, stayed in Asia for a while. At about that time, there arose no little disturbance. Again, kind of a funny way to say that, no little disturbance. What he's saying is there was a huge disturbance uh, concerning the way. 
We've talked about this a handful of times before, but the way, if that sounds like a weird way to describe things, the way is the people who follow Jesus, uh, the new way of life. John 14 says, I'm the way. This is Jesus talking. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So these are people who say, this is the way to eternal life. This is the way to just a, this is the way to God. We used to practice one way. This is the way. It's a completely new way of thinking that is just sweeping the nations. Uh, in, a, in a great way. So, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. What happens here is there are people following Jesus, and it is impacting those around them. What a thought. The people who are so radically transformed, who will give up their past life, who will give up, who will get baptized wearing a suit, like, this suit is useless to me. I don't have any need for this anymore. The old self is completely dead. The people who are looking forward to Jesus, looking forward to this new life and the spreading of the gospel, the new priorities, the new emphasis, the new values... What a thought that that would actually transform into their communities and that would actually overflow into the people around them. But there are people that don't like it. And there's a disturbance about these people who are talking about Jesus. You guys ever seen, uh, this isn't the first time, actually. Last week, Johnny talked about this in Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What are they doing? Turning the world upside down. They're talking about Jesus. Like, <laughs> They're not, they're not trying to shake anything up too crazy. They're going and talking about Jesus, and the nature of the gospel is that it shakes things up. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they're all acting against this, the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. The message they're bringing, there's another king. His name is Jesus. They're taking their old ones, old self, and saying here is a better way. I found something better. There's a guy who used to work around here named uh, David Bartosik, <laughs> and uh, a lot of you have heard of him. He's a knucklehead, but he, uh, he uh, that's what he calls me, so I think it's appropriate. <laughs> but he used to, this, he didn't come up with this idea, but he would always just say, hey, we're, we're just blind beggars telling other blind beggars where we found food. And whoever originally said that, they're smarter than David and me. But, but that idea, we're just blind beggars who found food. We want to tell everyone else where there's food. So... But they're impacting their community. That was unscripted. Has anyone ever seen this, uh, this uh, video or heard about this from 1995 when National Geographic uh, recorded the National Park Service reintroducing wolves back into the Yellowstone? Pretty wild. Also, you know it's a Stephen Huggins sermon because I can't go 10 minutes without talking about wolves or my van or Ellie or something like that. But <laughs> wolves. So in 1995, they realized that the, the Yellowstone River is this familiar to anyone? I heard like two or three people say, yeah. If it's not familiar, it's a really interesting story. Um, and I have my own personal opinions on it. But, but it's pretty fascinating. So what they were realizing was uh, the, the Snake River, the, uh, sorry, the Yellowstone River actually, was in Wyoming, uh, was actually getting contaminated and there was bad stuff happening in the entire ecosystem and it was starting to crumble. And they realized we have to do something. And so a bunch of wildlife biologists uh, got together and said, we have the solution. We're going to introduce, started with 11 wolves in 1995, and then the following year they introduced 14 more, and then I think they, next year they introduced like 12 more or something. Uh, so if you do the math on there, it's like high 30s, 37 wolves or something like that. That was 1995, 96, and 97. What they realized was because of the wolves, the elk wouldn't trample uh, the riverbanks anymore, and so there was less soot going into the water. And because the wolves were now eating other smaller predators, there were more rabbits and other tiny animals, and the deer were, were more under control, and the elk 
were getting more under control as well. There were fewer elk, and then the bison now had a threat, so the bison weren't trampling all over, and, and trees started growing in places that there were never trees before, and water started flowing in other places that there had never been water, and it actually influenced the river so much that there was now clear water flowing into Colorado that used to be full of soot and undrinkable, unusable, and no animals could live in there, animals meaning fish, things that live in water, and, and, and fish started coming back into the ecosystem, and it transformed everything. It is an incredible story. The video is five minutes, or else I would have shown you it here. But it, the way that these wolves transformed everything in Yellowstone, it's incredible. Similar to how these 12 guys were impacted by one guy, and they flipped the world upside down. It multiplied, it multiplied, it multiplied, spread for miles and miles in communities in communities. Now, I do also have to add, this is not Sermon Stephen, but this is conservationist Stephen speaking, which I'm not a professional at, but now there are, uh, we're overrun with wolves. So Adam, don't push the illustration too far because we now have over 14,000 wolves in the area where they wanted 1,000, and there are no longer ungulates. It's a new word. It's a hoofed animal, elk, bison. It's actually now, we're overpopulated with wolves, so they're going to have to overcorrect somehow and see something. But that is not the point of the illustration. <laughs> that is just the point of... <laughs> <laughs> Elk tastes good. But no, I don't have any more because wolf are eating them. But, but look at the impact. I don't know if I can recommend this documentary or not, but, but there is an impact when we're sold out to something. It changes not only us, but it changes our communities. There's a disruption in our values, in our priorities. There's a disruption and it overflows to those around us. So we continue on. The gospel promotes our transformation and that of our culture now, our second point is the gospel opposes and exposes our idols. And here's the original text that I think actually packs a bigger punch when you understand the opposite. And when you juxtapose them together, you can actually see that there's actually a story Paul, uh, Luke is telling us here that it opposes and exposes. It says this in verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, linking the story together, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the worksmen in similar trades. There's a disruption earlier in the chapter that leads to, I can't get enough of Jesus, why do I need this stuff? And now here's a different experience where a guy's saying, there's actually a disturbance and I don't act, I'm not a fan. I'm not enjoying where this is going. I see where this is going and I'm actually not into this, this gospel transformation, this community transformation that is rooted in Jesus, God-centered living. I'm not a fan of this because it's actually disrupting something in my life. And what he's doing is he goes and finds the other craftsmen and they form a little mob. They get together and they form a little community, a little, a little, uh, a little posse. These he gathered together, the other businessmen with workers in similar trades. He gets this posse together of other people who are presumably equally mad, who are equally frustrated about the, the disturbance, the no little disturbance concerning the way, and he says this. He's going to tell us three things. Guys, this is impacting our wealth. This is impacting us personally. we got to stop this. we got to do something about this. We are being impacted. He says this in verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. What his job was, was he was a silversmith, and he would make these little trinkets. Artemis is kind of a big-time goddess in, in the ancient world. Even today, people probably still worship her at some capacity. She's uh, also known as the uh, goddess Diana. 
If you've heard of Diana, it's the same goddess, just Roman and Greek names. She had a, a temple that was, <clears throat> I read that it's four times the size of the Parthenon. It was the biggest building, it was the biggest structure in the Greek world at that time. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They took their Artemis worship seriously. They meant business. This is what Ephesus is known for. This is who we are, this is what we do, and nothing will get in the way. We need to preserve this trade specifically. We need to preserve this trade. We need to ensure that this is going to continue on. What can we do? You know that from this business we have our wealth. It's disrupting us personally. It's impacting our religion. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul's persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Uh-oh. What does Demetrius do? Makes gods with his hand. Ugh. The third thing he says is this actually impacts our culture. It impacts our wealth, our religion. It impacts our culture. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. It's not only about us. Like, don't, hey, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's not only about us. Like, it's not just self-serving. But, but think about what's going to happen to Artemis. It's not, uh, and there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Everyone's doing it. The whole world is doing it. We don't want to be the ones left out, do we? The whole world comes here. It's a week-long festival of worship to Artemis that just impacts our economy significantly. People come in, they want to worship her, and they buy our trinkets. They buy our idols. What can we do? This is going to impact us. He says it impacts our personally, us personally, impacts our religion, impacts our culture. And I think for us today, when we encounter the gospel, it impacts our, my, your personal wealth. If Jesus impacts these things, is it too far? Has, 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 a, has our faith gone too far when it starts to impact, when it says, leave your job and move across the world, like we heard for last week? If it takes a sophomore in high school, Braden Overton, you don't get a summer job, you're going to check the Czech Republic. If it impacts the way you make a living and it influences the job you take, the clients you interact with, the roles you step into, if it influences that, has it gone too far? If it influences our religion and, and takes our previous way of thinking where we had these preconceived notions about Jesus, about God, and the more we read his text, the more he, we are in, encountered by the gospel, the more time we spend around in here in community thinking about God and it changes what we believe it influences, impact, expands the way we view Jesus has it gone too far. I like my Jesus in a box. If it impacts our culture and the way we do life and who we spend our time with and who we're investing in and who we're being invested in from, if it impacts all of these things and closes stores and opens others, has the gospel gone too far in our lives? I think a lot of the times we have that approach, I like my faith, I like my God in a box. But the moment it starts to impact me personally, the moment it starts to impact, I, I like the Jesus that I could overly comprehend. I don't like the Jesus that actually challenges me to think differently and live differently. I don't like that Jesus. If it impacts our culture and actually the way we invest our time, when he influences everything, I think a lot of the time we respond very similarly to, me, to Demetrius. I like Jesus, but I don't like when he shakes things up. I like Jesus, but I don't like the disruptions. It hit me that way. 
When they heard this, they were enraged. Understandably so, I think. And they cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They started a chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with, say it with me, the city was filled with? And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who are Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in. And most of them didn't know why they had come together. But when they recognized that Alexander was a Jew, they cried out again in madness. (laughs) My own word, it's not in the text. They cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. If there's one word you could use to describe this crowd, if there was one word Luke could use to describe this crowd, what would it be? Demetrius, deeply offended by the gospel, wants nothing to do with it, wants to preserve his order. The idols that I worship are bringing me order. Don't get in the way of that. Stop this man at all costs. This gospel movement is influencing things and I don't want it to. I liked the box. I liked my life. I liked the way I had lined up. Don't let them get in the way. So he forms a little crowd, a little posse, and this posse, he pitches to him. He says, it's going to change everything. This gospel is going to change everything. We have to put an end to it. It looks almost like the gospel has reached its limits. But we know better than that. But he's going to do everything he can to stop this movement including a riot of confusion. Now, there are two kinds of confusion, I think. There's the kind of confusion that actually leads you to ask questions and push through, and that's our next point that I forgot to click on. We aren't swept up by madness of crowds. We push through confusion. There's a kind of confusion that pushes through to find clarity. I think being confused is actually a a good thing. Asking questions and wanting to learn and seek more knowledge and wisdom, that's a good thing. There's a confusion that leads you to think deeper about who God is and reach out to people who are further along and have thoughts and have thought about this before and want to process with you. But there's another kind of confusion that leads to madness. And I think here, it is not the first kind. I think the, the confusion that they're experiencing here is just the, the madness of the crowds. It's almost a social commentary on today. Would you say? Last handful of years, we've had some crazy things go on doesn't matter what the way you view the world there has been upset on one end or the other we're just people come together and they get angry and there's more and more chaos that breaks out church at Richfield I want us to be the kind of people who push through confusion they push through madness when it comes to topics of the gospel we push through and rather than getting angry we push through to clarity and have conversation Again, on either end of the spectrum, wherever you fall, there was a place your mind probably just went. It was those people, it was those people who did all the problems. But the hill we die on is not the political hill that we die on. The the hill we die on is the gospel moving forward. What is it that upsets us? We push on for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of a certain flag one way or another. We push on to bring the gospel further to more people. We push through this confusion to find clarity. It says this in 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, the town clerk was 
actually a pretty prestigious role. Uh, we were reading the text together on Monday as a staff. As we do every Monday, we read the, the coming Sunday's text. And uh, we were just kind of <laughs> surprised by town clerk. Like, is that a serious role? Like, I don't know. It's just not a, like, wow, he's the governor. Like, like it's just not a, like a, a sought-after role. But in this context, it was like the mayor of the town, like of Ephesus, which is a huge town. So it's a prestigious role. So the town clerk quiets the crowd. They don't care what Alexander has to say. They just chant over him for two hours in madness. And so when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who doesn't know that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? Again, Artemis worship was something they took very seriously. Uh, a week-long festival, Huge building, seventh wonder of the ancient world. Good stuff. Ah, bad stuff, but good stuff. Really good stuff in their perception. Uh, the temple, well, that's what we're known for in here in Ephesus. And who doesn't know the sacred stone that fell from the sky? A stone, I think I would call it a meteor. <laughs> like, I think it makes sense that it was a meteor, but it was a, it was a gift from God from their perception. A gift from God came and landed in Ephesus, and, uh, and it actually looked like an idol. This is the backstory of it. It actually looked like uh, somewhat human. Um, Artemis was the goddess of fertility, um, the goddess of which also influenced the goddess of the harvest. And so she was in charge of everything. They said she was the mother of the beasts. Um, she was in charge of all the ungulates, uh, whatever that looks like in Ephesus. But all the animals, all the, the crops, and all of fertility, anything that you could even, like, your mind could go to, she was the goddess of that. She was an important goddess, the daughter of Zeus. Who doesn't know about this story? The town clerk stands up and says, guys, everyone knows this stuff. Calm down. Everyone knows who this goddess is. She's not going anywhere. Don't worry. Seeing then, verse 36, that these things cannot be denied, be quiet. <laughs> Seeing that these things can't be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men who are here, neither, uh, they're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint, if they actually did something wrong that you can prove, if there's actually a serious offense here, then the courts are open. Take it to court, and they're proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, do it the way that we have predetermined, follow order. These goddesses and gods, they worship them, they're idols, they worship them to bring order in their life. How stinking ironic is this? <laughs> the very things that you're looking for for order, the, the very things that you're looking for to bring understanding, the very things that we today look for for understanding, he's saying, guys, you missed the boat on that one. The very thing that you're saying actually delivers value, you're now torn up about it. Feels like a somewhat minor offense, and you're torn up about it. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly. He goes, says this, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. We really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Pretty interesting. It says this, we look to God for ultimate meaning and order in life. I think I already summed that up. How did this text start earlier on in 27? What is, what is the thing that, that Demetrius says to his people? There's danger. Danger of what? Going to come into disrepute. And the temple of our great goddess will be counted as nothing. 
the very thing that he rowels up his crowd, winning them over with, is, hey, we're in danger. What is the danger? The gospel. The gospel is actually going to bring danger to us. This way that we have understood order and life and peace and harmony, this thing that has just made perfect sense to us, the gospel is going to put us in danger. And then he ends. Town clerk says, no, actually, you guys, actually, you people who are rioting, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting because there is no reason for this. The very people who were so torn up about the gospel impacting their way of life, now the town clerk is saying, no, you guys are actually the ones who are putting yourselves in danger. It hit me because, again, I look at that list from earlier. It impacts my per- an encounter with the gospel impacts my personal wealth. It impacts my religion, the way I, I had uh, perceived Jesus before. And then I started reading the text on my own and realized I have been trusting in my own understanding of Jesus. I experience that every week almost. And when I'm reading the text, I'm like, there's another idol I had in my life. There's another idol I had in my life. I'm walking, I stub my toe, and when it freaks me out and I get really angry over a stubbed toe, and I realize that was an idol in my life. And the way the gospel shakes these things up. I felt like I was in danger of being shaken up, but this text actually hit me and said, no, you're the one. You're the one who's putting yourself in danger by trusting in these idols this idol worship, whatever it may be. I don't worship silver things anymore, but I think in a lot of communities, I think I'm also often tempted to worship copper and Benjamin and Jefferson and something very similar to silver these days. I have a lot more, the jingly kind, not the paper kind in my pocket, but it's so easy to worship. Even my daughter, I was thinking about that. How many times have I gone and hung out with someone who has a child around the same age and I have made turn my daughter into an idol because I love that she is developing quicker or faster or can say more words, whatever it is. How often do I find value in that? And then I hear someone come along and say, oh, my kid says more words. I'm like, who cares? (laughs) To a degree, who cares? But all these things that just stir up as I'm reading this text, it hit me. So many idols. And when I experience, when the gospel exposes an idol in my life, do I run angry? Do I push through the confusion to find the clarity? Do I actually process through what's triggering me and bring it to God and say, God, help me? Or do I bring my buddies together, form a crowd, and say, this must stop? And the gospel demands a response. These are our takeaways. Stinking love that. It just made the connection in my mind that I hope you don't go to if you don't like drippy yolks, you're not a gospel participant. Because that's not the point. (laughs) That is not the point I'm making at all. But this visceral response to the gospel. When you see this, what does it do? Can't wait. Mmm. Breakfast of champions, most important meal of the day. Or, oh, yeah, gross. It must be stopped. 
So here's some takeaways for us. I look at the crowd. Thank God the gospel does not end in Acts chapter 19. Continues on. And later on, Paul writes to the Ephesians, which we are going to in the fall. So the story's not over for the Ephesians. I think one of the things I realized is change takes time. We skipped over Acts chapter 18, but even in 18, people had their understanding of the gospel. They're preaching it. Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila come up to them after and say, hey, there's this thing called the Holy Spirit. Pretty cool. Uh, It's like you're missing out a piece of the gospel here. And they fill in their understanding of the gospel. These people are so fired up about it and say, well, that's amazing. Like, I get to now have a fuller understanding of the gospel. But they didn't know that instantly. Change takes time. We still step into crowds that are complete madness. We still wake up every morning with another idol. And another idol. And another idol. It takes time. So we're patient. As we go to people who are in mad crowds, as we go to people who are in these crowds, potentially literally crowds, but more likely just buying into riotous thinking against the gospel, change takes time, so we're patient. As we share about the thing that we cannot get enough about, runny egg yolks and sourdough toast, just it's a match made in heaven. As we're going and sharing about the goodness of Jesus, showing how he has changed our life because we're blind beggars who found some food, and we're going and sharing with others. As we go, we're patient, knowing that there is this visceral response that sometimes takes time. We're thankful. We're thankful that God uses us to go reach these people, but also we're thankful that God was patient with us. Because I don't think I'm too far from Demetrius in this story. I don't think I'm too far from the people that I see on TV and I'm like, what are they thinking? I don't think I'm too far from that. I think God has rescued me from that and I'm overwhelmingly thankful for it, but I think it would be really easy for me to fall back into this idolatrous, idol worship way of life if I hadn't found something better. And we have friends around us who are just waiting for something better. Paul offered them something better with the gospel, with the goodness of Jesus, and it changed everything. So we're patient, we're thankful, and we've been sent. There's one more text, there's one more verse that we looked over. It's verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the chaos that is ensuing, when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, high-ranking officials in Asia, who were friends of his, name drop, <laughs> feels like, oh, I'm friends with an Asiarch, sent to him, they were urging him not to venture into the theater. When Paul wished to go in, who wanted to be right in the middle of the riot? Now, my hunch, doesn't say this explicitly, but I think we know Paul's character enough through the Gospels and through the rest of the books that Paul wrote, the other 13 books, my hunch is he didn't go in just to stir things up further. My hunch is he saw people stepping right into death for eternity, saying, I can't let them do that. It says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul speaking about this event. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? 
If the dead aren't raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If, if there's nothing after life, then why would I care? But, because there is something incredible, life, eternal life, with King Jesus, why would I fear anything? Of course I'm going to go in with the beasts. Again, beasts are the humans here. I hope that was clear. What better use of my time than wrestling with beasts for the sake of the gospel? He wants to go in. His heart, his passion is to go in. And I wonder, when I see a riot, do I run scared? Is my, my human nature more inclined to fly than to fight for the gospel's sake, to stand lovingly? Or is it easier to just acquiesce and say, forget it? Stay a blind beggar. I'm not going to tell you where there's food. Or is my heart actually to go and be in the midst of my communities, of my friends, of the spaces that I spend my time in? We call them here at RCC our R3 spaces, our R3 spaces where we have relationship with those who are yet to trust and treasure Jesus. When I'm hanging out there, is my heart to give them the gospel? Is my heart to go and be sent to them or is my heart to run? afraid, or to step into the madness of crowds. I challenge you. When you're stirred or disrupted this week, thank God for it. Thank God for the challenge that the gospel brings to our lives because there's nothing better than having a bigger, clearer view of who Jesus is. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your word, and thank you for Acts 19. God, thanks that the gospel doesn't end after this chapter. That seems like it ends on kind of a downer. God, thanks for being the God who is bigger than riots. Thanks for being the God who is bigger than our idols, and who actually gave us a way to unearth and expose the things that we often trust more than you. God, help us trust you. Every day more and more, help us trust you. As we go this week, God, show us what these idols are. And as we wrestle with them, as we want to hold on to them, God, show us how much better it is to trust you than these other things that we often hold on to. Whatever it may be, God, reveal them to us, expose them in our lives, and bring a close friend alongside to process with you and with them so we can ultimately get a bigger clearer picture of who you are and bring us greater joy. We pray this all for your glory and for our joy.